Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is The Poison Makers on Liberal Modernity. Our opening song is Turn You Inside Out from the 1988 release Green by R.E.M. And R.E.M. will accompany us throughout. My guest for this episode is Robert Stoltz, a professor in the Department of History at the University of Virginia and author of Bad Water, Nature, Pollution, and Politics in Japan, 1870 to 1950. Our topic today is a modernizing, industrializing Japan during the life of Tanaka Shozo, peasant, politician, land speculator, liberal parliamentarian, transgressor against the emperor, and environmental rights activist. But in the end, we're talking about liberal modernity and industrial capitalism across the globe. From labor coercion and industrial accidents to widespread pollution and so-called engineering fixes that frequently only compound disasters, this is not a story unique to Japan. We are all Japanese, and no one is Japanese. You'll have to keep listening to hear the explanation for that. In Bad Water, published by Duke University Press, Stoltz demonstrates how a series of large-scale industrial disasters in the 1890s revealed the need to incorporate nature into politics. The Ashio copper mine unleashed massive amounts of copper, arsenic, mercury, and other pollutants into surrounding watersheds and in the process exposed the myth of the autonomous liberal subject. When the air, water, and land are contaminated by private corporations in support of an adventurous, modernizing state, how can one be responsible for one's own health and well-being? How can one pursue liberty and happiness in this corrupted environment? And if the new system of government fails to protect you on every level, who or what can you appeal to? Finally, Stoltz discusses Tanaka's concept of nigari, or positive flow, and doku, literally poison, and his warning that creating too much poison can overwhelm nigari, so that no equilibrium can be found. There will only be poison. This is clearly a message that enlightened and modern humanity has failed to learn. We begin with the way the organizing principles and politics of the modern nation-state are revealed in National Sacrifice Zones. And now, The Poison Makers, on Interchange, on WFHB. I am finding lots of connections and a through line between things like in this book, uh, Bad Water, about the Ashio copper mine pollution incident and Tanaka Shozo, on to later 
methylmercury poisoning in the post-war world and also in the Fukushima meltdowns of 2011. And it's largely organized by this idea that we seem to have a series of repeated national sacrifice zones, which is a Pentagon term to explain the U.S. Southwest and the areas used for nuclear testing. And the idea that we get different chemical and pollutant agents, be it copper, methylmercury, or radioactive material, the organizing principles and the politics of all of that share a tremendous amount of social and political uh, similarities. So even though the chemical agent might be different in each case, I think this is a class of problems that runs through the modern nation state form. Before we jump into uh, Ashio and Tanaka Shozo as well, uh, I, I did want, I guess I did want to jump into Tanaka Shozo with what you just said there in terms of trying to understand that this is, a, in a sense, his his proposition of, of poison, right? The doku or, or however you would say that. that yes, that, that's right. It feels to me like, you know, this particular organization, you know, industrial capitalist organization is all about doku and humanity in its organizing construction by various parties that were constantly just producing the poison spaces. Um, yes. And, and so this, you know, the through line to me is always that humans produce poison because we're not aware of the, the inability to be external to nature that we think we are. I think that's exactly right. Now, Tanaka has a specific philosophy of doku uh, paired with another term, nagare or flow, mm -hmm. but in another way, absolutely. What we're talking about is what in economics talks about externalities, mm -hmm. things that are not incorporated into the specific political economic calculus, but are nonetheless real. And you can do that a few different ways. One, you can just name them externalities and ignore them and focus on the internal coherence of another political economy or political thought. And Tanaka and some of these other theorists are refusing to do that. They're trying to see this in a bigger picture and incorporate what is called externalities to the internal parts of their thought in a much more totalizing and I think much more effective and therefore much more dispiriting and depressing way. Right. The equation doesn't end in a, in a positive generally. So it did not for him. Right. right. Yeah. So we, we're going to, we're going to work through this in terms of uh, 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 Tanaka's uh, life story in some ways, but, you know, mostly moving towards uh, the kind of movements he was a part of. And, and the biography helps us understand the political organization of the time as well of the various times. Well, let's start with his life, I guess, first. When is Tanaka born and where? And I guess, you know, what, what's his life? What, what part of society does he come from? His lifespan is from 1841 to 1913, and he was born in a village sort of northwest of Tokyo. Uh, at the time, it would have been northwest of Edo before it changed names after the major revolution of 1868 to Tokyo. Uh, at the time, he was what's called a nanushi, which is a village headman, and he worked in that respect up until the major revolution of 1868, at which point he becomes a committed liberal in the sense of, say, like uh, John Stuart Mill, utilitarianism, Jeremy Bentham. And as such, he participated in 
the Japanese liberal movement of the 1870s and early 80s called the Popular Rights and Liberty Movement, which was a widespread and ultimately successful agitation by a, an enormous group of people to get Japan to issue a constitution and have a representative democracy and a parliamentary system, in this case, based on the Prussian, so it's called the National Diet, which opened in 1891. Tanaka was elected as a representative from his area in the Diet until he resigned around 1900 and 1901 for, for reasons we can get into about his uh, Jikiso protest. During the 1870s and uh, early 80s, when he was a member of uh, a liberal party called the Constitutional Progressive Party, one of two major parties in Japan at the time, he was also the editor of the Tochigi Shimbun, which is the Tochigi, that's an area where he was from, newspaper. And as editor, he didn't uh, write these himself, but he published translations of Mill and Bentham and many other petitions by local activists arguing for the issuance of a constitution, which, as I mentioned, was successful. The constitution was written in 1889 and came online in 1890. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Poison Makers and centers on the life and thought of Tanaka Shozo, a radical environmental thinker in early 20th century Japan who criticized the modernizing liberal state for the attempt to tame or negate nature in the built environment. Our guest is Robert Stoltz, author of Bad Water, Nature, Pollution and Politics in Japan, 1870-1950. As he was this committed liberal, both in print and in the diet as a representative, he experienced what everyone in the area came across, which, which is this horrific flooding of 1890 and again in 1896. And these floods were very different from floods that had happened in the area over centuries, in that what was discovered was that these floods now contained a host of pollutants coming from the Ashio Copper Mine, which is located at the headwaters of the Watarase and Tone rivers. These pollutants then flowed through the river and through irrigation and other mediations made it into the rice paddy fields. As it turns out, a rice paddy is a perfect, basically, precipitation pond for pollutants and sediment and uh, heavy metals to precipitate out. And it destroyed the industry, destroyed not just the rice paddies, but the sericulture or the silkworm manufacturing because it destroyed the mulberry plants. It even deeply altered the areas famous for indigo dyeing, the new copper pollutants in the water fundamentally changed the hues of the dyes and even destroyed that because the extra chemical reactions were no longer saleable in the way that they had been for centuries. This is the big break um, in Japanese history and in Tanaka's biography and Tanaka's thought when he realized that things you were able to count on for generations you could no longer count on. Something fundamentally had changed, and it had changed in the very land and water that you lived on and made your production from. The copper mine is at the center of this, but also 
uh, kind of the construction of what it means to be uh, modern, sort of development of industrial processes, the acceptance of, of doing particular things like this, having copper mines, exporting materials for a, a, a state economy that serves a particular interest as well. So I think it's interesting and important, as you mentioned, Mill, etc., the sort of the study of Western thinking in Japan at the time and the ways in which that thinking sort of led the way for this acceptance of industrial actions, you know, like the copper mine and, and the belief that there's the ability to manage these resources to serve a particular, I guess, ideological organization of humanity, for lack of a better yeah. term, right? So uh, can you talk a little bit about the just the political philosophy, you know, how it worked within Japanese culture, which, you know, again, is moving from uh, I guess a, a extremely feudal culture, right? Where I guess even like I was, I was trying to like imagine the distinct differences, right, between having a culture that's you know shogun oriented or whatever, whatever you know, uh, to sure to one in which you know you're working in mines and people's lives are just changed almost overnight in that sense. I mean, it's not entirely like that, but it's close, right? It's a, a huge change happens. Oh, enormous! Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, if we really want to simplify it a bit, you don't have peasants that are tied to the land. They are now mobile. Right. And so they could go to work in the mine. And I mean, this is basically the emergence of what Marx called the doubly free worker. Mm -hmm. Needs to be free to sell his or her labor and also free, in a sick joke, from the ability to support him or herself, free from the means of subsistence. Right. And that's what's a big transition. And the state apparatus and the political ideology that was put in place because it was seen as exceedingly modern after 1868. And of course, all the Western powers are saying, this is modern, right. we are modern, you need to be like us, and this is fundamental to this. And so that's an enormous change, absolutely. The other thing about that though is why pollution especially, especially industrial scale pollution is problematic for that is that liberal philosophy, as we all know, is built and needs an autonomous individual subject and builds up from there. And something like industrial scale pollution, when it is involuntary linking of people and policies and industrial choices, that is really problematic for it. And it doesn't have an individual solution. Not only does the Ashio copper mines effluent pollute the landscape and the water, it also biologically and importantly, politically contaminates the autonomous liberal subject upon which Japanese modernity and Western modernity was built. What I'm suggesting through Tanaka, and Tanaka saw this explicitly, liberalism with its excessive focus on individual voluntary relations has no language and therefore has no resources with something that systemic and supra-individual. Let's put our heads together to start a new country up. The fathers, fathers, father tried to erase the parts you didn't like. Let's try to fill it in. It's time for a break. This is R.E.M. with Cuyahoga off of the 1986 release Life's Rich Pageant. Stay with us for more on the poison makers of liberal modernity when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is The Poison Makers, which details the life and times of Japanese radical environmental rights activist Tanaka Shozo. In this segment with guest Robert Stoltz, we discuss the very central role of the Ashio Copper Mine in the development and organization of Japanese society as it moved away from feudalism and into a liberal, modernizing state. This is It's an interesting space of political science fiction, the idea of the autonomous subject, right? The, exactly. Because yeah. it's, not an ex, it's not an existing thing in the first place, right? Even if you imagine the, the autonomous subject has a right to not work in the copper mines or anywhere else. Yes. But as, as everything else has been taken away, what should that subject do other than be subject to that labor? You know, you can't really escape it. You know, and this is interesting too, because in Russia, these same things are happening in, in a lot of ways, right? So, sure. You know, what happens in Japan when, you know, this, this sort of feudal empire falls? Are people forced into this kind of labor space? Yeah, there's not a lot. I mean, you will find examples of people being forced in the sense of driven to or conscripted into doing some of this labor. But they are forced in the way we've been talking about through the mediation of not being able to provide for themselves. And therefore, all they can do, they need to work for someone else in order to provide for themselves. So it's mediated by getting a job. It sounds like very difficult esoteric theory, but it means how are you going to eat today? Instead of having your own farm and being self-sufficient, you go work, get money, and then go buy what you need to eat today. It's really, in that sense, that simple. At its base, what I was saying about the idea that pollution complicates this individualist bias of liberal political theory, all that really says is you can be as free and as liberal in your mind as you want to be, but you still have a body that takes in air, water, and food. And if that air, water, and food is contaminated by someone else's practicing their individuality upstream at the Ashio Copper Mine, there's a problem that is hard to adjudicate using just individual to individual face-to-face relations. Yeah, and understanding it via uh, property rights. Um, exactly. Yeah. The interesting thing, uh, too, about the Ashio Copper Mine is the the recognition of its pollution and yet the ways in which it seemed to be a very serious job of trying to 
not make the pollution responsible for the problems, right? Like the ways in which, you know, the, the, the flooding is the problem, not the pollution. Like yes. the, it's the flood that makes the problem. Otherwise, this, this copper wouldn't be a problem. You know, this, this, this uh, pollution from this particular process can't be a problem if it weren't for this flooding. So how are we going to manage flooding? Exactly. Right. Um, yeah. Initially, they did try and do it with property rights and individual ideas in their first anti-pollution, anti-ashio pollution order in 1897. And it didn't work for the reasons we've been talking about. And then there's another massive flood in 1902. And so a new policy is initiated, and it's what you're talking about here. Instead of appealing to the individual owner, or the pro- property right owner of the mine owner, Furukawa Ichibe, and the individual property rights of the farmers, this time, the state steps in and takes control of the river system itself, the entire watershed, nationalizes the water, and argues, as you mentioned, that it's not really the mine that's the problem because the copper is stuck in the river banks and the river bed, and it'll stay there and won't hurt anyone unless there's a flood. So, this is how it was changed to say, actually flooding, not mining, not industrialization is the real problem. And so the move is on to completely, and I mean completely, re-engineer the entire watershed of the Watarasa and Tony rivers, including as many of their tributaries as possible, to make sure that there will be no flooding. And this is the beginning of Japan's kind of now famous, infamous, holy concrete lined river system, possibly no, no major and very few rivers at all that are free flowing in Japan anywhere. And this is the beginning of that process. Wow. Hardcore engineering projects, concrete banks, high levees that cannot be overtopped. And I mean, this was a massive project. By the time the Watarase and Tone River areas and the watersheds are re-engineered in the early 1900s, they moved as much earth as the Panama Canal contemporary project in order to do all of this. Yeah, and so in this case, nature, flooding is seen as the problem, and we need to separate ourselves from that as much as possible. In the end, they can't do it. They just create new problems right. by trying to hardcore engineer a nature that will behave, and it doesn't. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Poison Makers and centers on the life and thought of Tanaka Shozo, a radical environmental thinker in early 20th century Japan who criticized the modernizing liberal state for the attempt to tame or negate nature in the built environment. Our guest is Robert Stoltz, author of Bad Water, Nature, Pollution and Politics in Japan, 1870-1950. Talk a little bit about the copper mine too. Uh, so, you know, how, how devastating was this uh, as a polluter and how, you know, the problem becomes the owner of the mill rather than, or the mine, rather than the fact of mining itself, you know, the problems with pollution that we, we focus on the, the particular of this one thing, a uh, wounding nature, I suppose, or this, mm-hmm. a, instead of the system that has been built 
to support these kinds of industrial actions. So is is the ICO copper mine kind of a, the first big industrial problem? Yeah, this was an enormous problem in the sense of it was enormously important to the industrializing Japanese state. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts by the state selling off the mine to this new owner, uh, Furukawa Ichibe, in 1877. Mm. And then almost a one-to-one relationship. As he modernized the extraction process with electricity, with new new technologies, and discovered new veins of copper, you get a direct linear relationship between the amount of pollution in the area. So the problem was, at the time in the 1870s and 1880s, the Ashio copper mine and its owner, Furukawa, was a major success story touted throughout Japan as how good we are at modernizing. This is working. Plus, you've got the national security and questions about copper. I mean, copper is a vitally important metal in the 19th century because it, it is going to run telegraphs. It's going to run electricity. And so it's hugely important as a strategic resource. Then it turns out that success itself, for the exact same reasons it was successful, led to, yes, Japan's first major industrial scale pollution incident, which on the protest side was just as big as the success side of the 1870s and 80s, in that it was called maybe the number one or one of two of the greatest social protest or social problem incidents of the entire Meiji period. And this spans from the success part in the 1880s, all the way through the floods of 1896, 1902, all the way through the entire Meiji period. Let's work Tanaka into this now also, because uh, again, I'm sort of fascinated by Western ideas. And and as you mentioned, you know, him being uh, involved in a newspaper that published a lot of these uh, translations of these particular texts. But there was one in particular that, that again, was just sort of surprising to me. It was uh, Samuel Smiles' self-help right. from 1859. It's funny because literally I just picked it up the other day in one of these little libraries. I'd never heard of it before. We have those little little libraries that are on the street, you know, that people put books in. Uh-huh. Um, but this is a this was a, a book with serious reach, man. Like I was just like, holy smokes, because this book has meaning to to Tanaka, right? It was a Meiji bestseller, oh my and gosh, it right. wasn't just a Tanaka. I mean, it was right, an right. enormous phenomenon. Yeah, you're exactly right, and it was part of this sort of optimistic, open ended spirit of the 1870s and a little bit into the 1880s. And we should remember that the popular rights and liberty movement was successful. It was difficult and there was some violence, but it was successful in getting a constitution written and a representative democracy in place by 1890, 1891. Um, What happens later, though, is the same process that was successful for getting a constitution totally failed in solving industrial pollution. But um, back to the Samuel Smiles and Mm -hmm. self-help, there were a lot of these that came across. Uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin, was something people read quite a lot about as well. Oh, All the aphorisms and right. time is money and you know the rest of it. I almost said clean your room, but that's got a different <laughs> resonance today. It's poor Richard. And so <laughs> exactly. Yeah, poor Richard. Um, these were really popular mm-hmm. and they were part of this open moment where the idea was go out and make something of yourself, which actually had its own phrase at the time, which was Rishin Shusei, which was basically saying, literally means stand up and go out into the world, but it means make something of yourself, be a self-starter, 
And that's where self-help and that entrepreneurial spirit came from. Yeah. Well, this is essential when you've you've removed all of the other things people could do with their lives. Um, so you've, Absolutely. you've got to yeah. be an entrepreneur of the self. Abs- that's exactly what was going on. And Tanaka was a true believer for the longest time, at least until 1896 and the devastating floods. Right. And that's why I think he's so interesting in that he wasn't just some leftover. He's mostly been written about in the 1970s. There's an English biography of him, and he calls him Japan's first conservationist. Some others call him the last peasant protest. And I don't think either one really worked because of this period where he was a true believer in representative democracy and liberal politics Yeah, and tried really hard for a long time to solve this new problem of industrial scale pollution with those resources, intellectual and political. Right, right. And and they they failed. And once it failed, that's when he had to come up with a totally new philosophy. And that's when he becomes something much more radical than a first conservationist. Right. He becomes a radical social theorist. That is a social and political philosophy adequate to industrial pollution and modernity. It's time for another break and another from REM's Life's Rich Pageant. This is These Days. More with Robert Stoltz on the radical environmental thinker Tanaka Chozo when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm talking with Robert Stoltz about the problem of industrial scale pollution and the modernizing state. We're discussing the life and times of Tanaka Shozo, who discovers that the liberal state cannot and does not care to protect individuals freed from feudalism when capitalist industrialism poisons every aspect of natural life. I think for myself, I've not quite gotten clear on the sort of the ways in which we can distinguish what we call a positive, you know, like this creation of, um, like you talked already about the Constitution and a change from a particular kind of society uh, that, you know, if we look back at it, we think of it as, you know, an impressive 
a place where you don't have freedom to do certain things, etc. But then we talk about the positive, you know, move towards this kind of individualism and, and liberalism of these particular forms. Um, and then we watch it walk towards the negative because of unstructuring of these things that tied us together in a lot of ways. So it's a right. weird, it's a weird way we want to give positive responses to these things. Now I'm free and I'm no longer a serf or I'm no longer, a, um, all these things are true, right? But they're so tinged with a loss of understanding of not being a free actor that life is about, right? Nature is about of being a part of this, I think you call it a, a metabolic shift or a rift, I think Marx also right. calls it, right? Where you no longer understand that your body is natural, Right. That, right. That, that everything you do needs that natural, you know, relationship. And it's kind of in this liberal term that we lose all that. Right. That, that Absolutely. And, yeah. and it's such a to me, it's such an amazing stupidity. And I, there's a reason I like this story or this person or this, you know, this this turn so much is that, like you say, a guy who bought into that. He was right. he was a politician, too. He was a peasant. Or came from that particular. He came from that, right? yes. Uh, but but he doesn't want to go back to a golden age, which there wasn't it, one. Definitely not. Tanaka does not want to go back to a pre-industrial, pre-Meiji period, which is how he so often is described as longing for the community of the feudal era. He's definitely not for that. He's trying to go beyond industrialization to a new form of community based on that he saw working out in, in Yanaka. And he eventually comes to criticize lots of things that uh, Japanese nationalists and Japanese cultural nationalists would say is the solution to some of our too industrialized uh, psyches and the rest of it. Like bonsai. He can't stand bonsai, right? Because it, he's not about aesthetic nature. And that's why he's not a first conservationist. He doesn't really he doesn't really fit in with uh, John Muir or um, Aldo Leopold. He's Aesthetics are not interesting to him. His landscapes would not be a function of wilderness and beauty and national parks. His would be working landscapes, so maybe solar and windmills and the rest of it, but with people in it, not, not this other idea, this wilderness ethic that so often gets, is the way that radical ecology imagines the solution to these things. So, I mean, it's really kind of a fascinating way in which a guy literally buys into the times, right? You see, he's, in the, he's the sign of the times, and he wants to make the times work, and, and work uh, in a very, again, entrepreneurial way. As, as you note, he was a land speculator. He was, yeah. Right? He made his money that way. He succeeded that way. So what is it that turns him? How, how is a guy that seems to really be buying into this, like, how does pollution bother him? One, you're absolutely right in that the the moving away from being a peasant bounded to the land and subservient to a lord is emancipatory. That is a good thing. That is a form of emancipation. The problem is then later, the very forms that that emancipation took, like liberal capitalism, industrialization, state modernity, brought up new problems that couldn't have been feudal problems. You can't have industrial scale pollution under that older regime, but you can under the new one. In many ways, the, the more interesting part of the history is not the emergence of a different answer to an old question. It's the emergence of a brand new question that no one has had to ask before, which is the total pollution of an entire ecosystem. 
But the other answer about Tanaka specifically is early on, pollution did not strike him as something special. He saw it for five, six years while he was in the in the national diet as something that was solvable through compromise between property rights. And that was the form of his protest took. Eventually, though, the pollution not only does not get solved through any of these mediations and any of these tax abatements and any of these other problems that fit fully within liberal political philosophy, they get worse as things ramp up. And it's at that point, he tries this extraordinary direct appeal to the Meiji emperor in the street outside the National Diet Building in December 1901, and completely doesn't work. The the emperor doesn't even get the appeal. He gets arrested and nothing happens in the sense of politics. What happens is the mind pollution keeps getting worse. And at that point, I argue that Tanaka has exhausted every resource that liberal political philosophy and an individualist subjectivity has available. Mm. And he says this in his diaries. He says, I finally realized the folly of appealing to the government to solve this problem. I now need to appeal to heaven itself. And heaven is mostly a a metaphor for um, nature. From then on, 1901 and on, he just goes into the polluted lands and starts studying, walking, talking to people, trying to figure out mapping the pollutants through their tributaries, mapping it, the move from pollution to into plants, but also into bodies and also into social relations. Pollution shows up as rural poverty, even if a chemist can't find it. It shows up in low birth rates, high death rates. And he makes this breakthrough where he's going to talk about pollution socially and no longer individually grounded in property rights. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Poison Makers and centers on the life and thought of Tanaka Shozo, a radical environmental thinker in early 20th century Japan who criticized the modernizing liberal state for the attempt to tame or negate nature in the built environment. Our guest is Robert Stoltz, author of Bad Water, Nature, Pollution, and Politics in Japan, 1870-1950. You just mentioned the appeal to the emperor. This was a major, this is like an, a thing that's not generally done, right? <laughs> no, but definitely not. Because, yeah. because you, you get killed for that. Where not only you might get killed, but anyone like your, your family might get killed for it as well. Like it was a, it was a serious offense. Yes. I mean, especially pre-Meiji. Right, right, right. And, th- and that was the model he, he was trying to reenact was the idea that the government has allowed all of its citizens in this area to get sick and poor and die, and somebody needs to do something. And the national diet and the political parties, in Tanaka's view, weren't doing that. And so who's going to? At the time, he was brainstorming. He came around to the emperor needs to step in and put an end to this bickering that is doing nothing but allowing the pollution to continue. And so he and another... Uh, activist, Kotok Shusui, they write this appeal in very old language, direct appeal to the emperor. And the, the term is jikiso, and that literally means direct appeal. And as you mentioned, it's out of channels. It's supposed to be carry an instant death penalty in the feudal area. It w- would have. Hmm. But the interesting part about this is it's a spectacular event. It's in all the newspapers. It's a source of gossip. It's everywhere. It was a total failure and nothing happened. And when Tanaka really falls into depression, when he realizes 
that not only did nothing happen, he was supposed to be killed. He's supposed to become a martyr to the cause. And instead, he stayed in jail overnight. They had a doctor come in and say he's sane. And they released him the next morning. And this was more unbearable than actually being killed. And at that point, he's got no political, ideological inheritance to figure out what do I do next? Mm -hmm. And so he commits himself to going straight into the worst of the polluted areas and living and studying and writing, but also practicing certain other ways of organizing the relationship between humans and nature in those places. And he does that from basically 1902 until his death in uh, 1913. I wanted to talk a little bit about that sort of interim period, right? Because it's interesting how he begins to try to conceive of these things in governmental terms or in state terms or in nationalistic terms. And yes. uh, you know, and how, how this has to find its way through to the other side of this as well, right? So you can go and blame... Uh, the private property owner of the of the mine. You can think about you know fixing things via these particular state interventions, these governmental interventions. But then there's always this this period of corruption or this way in which uh, the state serves itself but doesn't necessarily do anything that's useful. Passes laws that sound good but don't don't have any effect. This is generally the world we still live in. Yes. Um, and so again, for me, this is such a, an amazingly important narrative and story that we keep not learning from, which is you say throughout throughout your chapters too, how disappointing it is Yeah. also. And I like that you express that. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about this idea of national death and, you know, try, him trying to like oh, sure. try, try to figure out a way in which you conceive of it beyond the individual, you know, because again, I think it's that move to try to move, you know, away from liberal ideas of individuals. Uh, and he pushes it into this space of, you know, uh, uh, the people, I suppose, or this sort of national being called Japan, right? Yes. And, and, and so can you describe that a little bit of how, how that might have been like a step toward this next phase for him? Because that's like 1896, 97. His concept of national death or bokoku. That was, you're right, uh, one of the transitions between a fully individualist perspective and his later fully developed environmental thought and, and environmental rights uh, that you get in the you know, 1905, 1907. But the idea of national death, it's built up of two characters of death and the nation. So it is dead nation, something like this. But it, interestingly, it's also a bit of a homonym with Bokoku or motherland which in Japanese. So he's playing around with that a little bit. The, the idea specifically is there is no public Japan. It's just a fiction of a bunch of powerful, rich industrialists calling themselves Japan. And he includes the government and eventually comes close to including the emperor on that side of the policy. And so his idea is we should have, again, natural rights, heaven granted rights, People should be free. But one of the big questions animating this whole thing is, how free can you be in a toxic landscape? And he sees the problem as there is no Japan. We call it something Japan, but it's really just a bunch of people and governments and institutions working towards their own gain. And in the end, the result is the impoverishment and death of many of the people. And what he means by Bokoku, national death, is that idea that we're all citizens and equal under the law doesn't really exist. It's too corrupted by interests, geopolitics, bribery, financial interests, and the rest of it. And so he's 
essentially saying there is no Japan. It's time for our final break. A decade after life's rich pageant came new adventures in hi-fi. This is Undertow by R.E.M. When Interchange returns, we'll hear how the radical environmental rights activist Tanaka Shozo centered nature over nation. You go down to the water, drink down on the water, walk up off the water. But this is not my dream, sister. It is cold in heaven. I'm not sprouting wings. Back to Interchange on WFHB. In our final segment of The Poison Makers, our guest Robert Stoltz details Tanaka Shozo's idea of nagare, or positive flow, and doku, or poison flow, and his criticism of the solutionism of human engineering by the modern state, which thinks it can dominate or tame nature. Is Japan a construction for the state? Is this a Japan that's different than any other nation as an idea? Do you think he, or has he, or did he sort of think about this in terms of all nations? In the end, he, he definitely arrived at that conclusion, mm. that, there's, that Japan is just a Japanese version of what is true of industrial modernity everywhere, and therefore every nation state. Around 1896, he's starting to work through that, but he's, he's hoping that the idea of calling something national death means that there was a nation and it, it hasn't been allowed to be activated. Later on, he's, he's going to abandon that completely. His um, environmental thought, it, it does not rely on the nation. Environmental rights, as he talks about them in the 1907 up to his death in 1913, they do not require the nation. In fact, I called it nature over nation. Environmental rights are guaranteed by material practices of nature if you do them the right way, and they don't rely on being granted rights or taking rights from a government. At one point, he even said something along the lines of, even if Japan were to die, we are under no obligation to die with it, and made that fundamental break. That's what I'm calling environmental rights as opposed to political or legal rights. You got your sustenance. You lived your life by following nature, not fighting and re-engineering nature, and that would be enough to sustain you. Whereas legal rights, he saw, 
are too easily corrupted. Later making the move to say, he'll say, flowing water never deceives. The the real powers of the land and the earth, or the water and the earth are the real powers, and they are above and more fundamental than legal rights, social rights, political rights, voting. And therefore, for him, they could become the basis of real societies and real civilizations. Later on, he's going to make the move to say, this is what I'm calling a civilization of rivers, Mm -hmm. and we can count on that. As you mentioned already, in 1902, he begins to kind of go, uh, when he explores the river, but the, these river pilgrimages make it clear to him, you know, the, the depths of these problems. But he also begins to move into these, this uh, philosophy of poison and flow, or doku yeah. and nagari. Um, and so uh, I guess talk a little bit about this particular situation, this philosophy, and then talk about the Yanaka village clearing right. uh, also, because this is obviously a very central part of this and this kind of dead zone of where this confluence of all this activity happens. And, and for him, it's a major symbolic place. So eventually he will develop what I think is genuine environmental thought and environmental rights. And he centered it on what you've just mentioned, these two possible ways of nature acting in the world. One is nagare, which is flow. And that is going to be something that you need to foster and try and follow. Doku is also a flow, but it's one that leads to death and destruction and poverty and pollution and the rest of it. The key is Tanaka sees nature as always dynamic, as a motion inherent in nature itself. And he's arguing this against the state that believes it can completely re-engineer the rivers and impart motion from without with good civil engineering, dams, sluices, banks, and the rest of it in an attempt to completely control and in their sense, solve the industrial pollution case. Tanaka says, this is false. This is a misunderstanding of what nature is. You can't eliminate motion from the system. What you have to do is work with it in a way that will foster health, freedom, and prosperity. And that for him is Nagare. He says, if you try and impose your own will on this dynamic nature, you will cause other problems. You'll cause backflow, regression, because that motion is going to go somewhere, even if you think you can control it all the way through. And this nasty version of nature's motion is what he calls doku, which literally means poison. And in that sense, he says, if you keep insisting on dominating nature and imagine that you can make it do whatever you want it to do, you will eventually create an expanding negative feedback loop of doku that will get bigger and bigger and bigger. And he has this famous move in 1902 when he's writing saying, if you keep doing this too long, eventually it's going to become irreversible. He says, eventually the river is going to flow out of a poison mountain of foul rocks that completely takes over the area. And then he adds very ominously, and I said earlier that this is why he's probably right. But the reason he's right is because he's so pessimistic in that he says, if this continues too long, there'll be no saving anyone. You will have created a fully toxic second nature that won't be able to sustain anyone. Mm. Not even the capitalists, forget about just the farmers. It's going to toxify the world and you will have a toxic world. And at the minor level, when he's talking about these flood engineering projects, he says, these aren't going to work. 
it's going to create massive flooding upstream of the dams and the sluices because you've got a fundamentally mistaken idea of what nature is. And that's exactly what happened. Massive floods in 1910, but without extra rainfall, without anything extraordinary caused by the engineering itself, which was designed to eliminate floods. Right. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Poison Makers and centers on the life and thought of Tanaka Shozo, a radical environmental thinker in early 20th century Japan who criticized the modernizing liberal state for the attempt to tame or negate nature in the built environment. Our guest is Robert Stoltz, author of Bad Water, Nature, Pollution, and Politics in Japan, 1870 to 1950. I'm sure, I mean, it's not the only one who foresaw these issues. In fact, most of our corporate masters have foreseen these issues as well, sadly. But um, I love very much uh, a civilization of rivers is not a civilization of roads. And it's kind of like, so so I have to, uh, so the Nagari is the river and the roads are the doku. I mean, if- Yes. Yeah. In that- It's a little simple. He says roads are right angles, imposition of human ideas and human imprint on nature when it really wants to follow. This is why he used water as the metaphor for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a metaphor and it wasn't new. Right. Water follows the actual land. Water follows the shortest distance. That's good, he says. Right. We should note that and build our society around that, not have this idea that we need to rationalize a city in a straight grid pattern no matter what's in the way, and just impose that. I mean, I'm really simplifying here. Sure, but yeah. He says the the civilization of roads are hard angles, hard engineering, straight lines, and that that's an unnatural, artificial one, right. which is really common environmental insight. What he did was say nature will keep flowing through those hard angles and those grid lines, and it's going to produce a horrific, poisons civilization. It's not going to produce prosperity or, or the rest of it. Right, right. So it's a monistic th- philosophy that nature is going to move and it can move in a way that sustains life. And if you do the wrong things, it will move in a way that will eventually become antithetical to life. And that's that's what he's talking about. So right. I, I didn't answer your question about um, this village of Yanaka. Yeah, yeah. In the major re-engineering of the entire watershed, the key to that whole thing was having a reservoir where riparian engineers and the rest could manage the flow in and out. And it's not a coincidence that this place was decided would be just north of Tokyo to protect Tokyo from any sort of flooding. You would have a reservoir that would supposedly allow people to manage the flow. And they used all the straightforward civilization of roads language in that we must make sure that the river only functions under normal conditions, right? As opposed to all weather and the rest of it. So the place for this, they needed to find a place to flood. And what was the place chosen was called Yanaka Village. And what happens there is one of the first cases, might be the first cases, first large-scale case of the state using eminent domain to take the village over, declare ownership of the village, destroy all the houses and then flood the area for this flood control reservoir. And in the time 
taken between the decision in 1902 to flood Yanaka and its actual flooding in 1907, Tanaka moved there and lived there and worked there all day, every day. And the reason for that was he saw that Yanaka as not only the culmination of his environmental thought, but Japanese modernity itself and eventually modernity itself, nothing Japanese about it, in that that was the place where environmental and social repression was concentrated. It was the key to the whole thing. He saw Yanaka, which for everybody else is a backwater that can be safely ignored and even sacrificed to the national good. He saw that as, no, this is where everything must be focused on. Because if we can save this, we've got a chance. And they don't save that. And he's got other thoughts on that as well. But that's very often Tanaka is seen as after the failure of his appeal to the emperor, he resigns the, his place in the diet just before he appeals to the emperor in 1901. After it fails, he moves to Yanaka. And very often that story is told as he's retiring, he's resigning, he's going back to his rural roots. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly not what he was doing if you read his diaries and his letters. He was saying, no, this is the fight for civilization itself, right here in this small village slated for destruction by the state in a foolish attempt and futile attempt to try and impose its will on nature in a way that's not going to work. That's our show. We'll close with another track from R.E.M.'s Green. This is I Remember California. Again, Robert Stoltz's book is Bad Water, Nature, Pollution, and Politics in Japan, 1870-1950, published by Duke University Press. Tanaka Shozo saw the truth and spoke the truth about the modern industrial capitalist state in the first years of the 20th century. The state, organized to siphon wealth and power into few hands, is never going to save the world or protect its citizens. That's not what it's designed to do. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Kay Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.